0: You spell it with a K. So you take it easy.
1: Welcome to another episode of the Front Room Material Brand. My name is Mike Freeland. We are doing yet another interview with somebody I'm incredibly excited to get a chance to get a chance to talk to. Uh, This individual has wrestled all over the world, has had a very successful career, has been trained by some of the most impressive people in the industry, and by somebody who I am a huge fan of, and uh, someone I listen to each and every day, Mr. Brian Alvarez. We'll get ready to uh, talk about the Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon, because somehow we're always connected to each other. But uh, this individual is a high flyer, is incredibly technically talented, and you've probably seen him on AEW television, but you've probably also seen him all over the world in many different promotions. Right now, I have the honor to talk to Jack Evans. How are you doing, Bud? Hey, how's it
0: going? I'm doing well. I'm doing well, just relaxing.
1: We were uh, we were talking before we started recording that uh, I pulled you away from some video games. So I know nowadays a lot of wrestlers are are gamers. So what is your go to? Give me your your top five. You know what? I got free time. Let's go ahead and let's start gaming. Of all time or currently. Let's go with all time and then we'll go with what you currently really like to go
0: to. Well, my all time favorites would be like Doom and or Doom 2 actually I guess I like a little bit better, Final Fantasy 6, Final Fantasy 7, um oh, I'm trying to think. Uh, um, yeah, that's all I can think of right now. Oh man, maybe the original StarCraft, <laughs> I don't know. But uh yeah, uh, so uh, a when it comes to those old school ones, though, in all honesty, all I need is basically like Doom and all the mods and everything that people have made, and I'd be good for the rest of my life. Because I don't know if you've seen what they've done. And the game's like 30 years old now, and people are still modding it. So they've made it the most ridiculous. It's, it's something different now. It's something different. So Doom 2 would be my my answer with all the mods.
1: Let's talk a little bit about that really quickly because I know a lot of people we've talked to in in wrestling today, it, it's different than what it used to be. I mean, I know a lot of times it used to be when we talked to to other stars of you know the '90s and whatnot. It used to be the bars, the the, the clubs, this and that. But nowadays, it seems like a lot has changed. So, do you find that a lot of people in wrestling? Do have more conversations about gaming and what they're interested in and all that kind of stuff more so than, hey, let's go out to the bar or let's go to the clubs or anything like that?
0: I definitely think so because uh, like, this generation of wrestlers like stays in and doesn't really go out and do all the kind of crazy partying even less than like, mine did. And I know mine was nothing compared to, like, the 80s and 90s guys. Like, you always hear stories how, like, crazy things were. Even in the old WCW tapings for Saturday night, like, there's a whole bunch of stories that came out of there about guys. So I definitely think uh, when it comes to partying and everything, that this is, like, a tamer generation. And, like, they do go in and they'll game more and stuff like that instead of going out. And a lot of it, I think, honestly, has to do with just not wanting to spend the money. Like you know, I do think a lot of people would go out to the bar and everything, but it's like man, you get ten bucks a shot, maybe a cover, like who knows? You know what I mean? So
1: it's a lot of money. It's expensive to have fun, and it's just, especially with the way the world is today. I mean, like you said before, everything costs so much more. And and just to get a gas, you know, a tank of gas or an Uber or something like that, just to get to where you want to go to have a good time, is going to cost you X amount of dollars. So. You know what? Stay up in the room, order some room service, and uh, who are some guys that uh, your your inner circle, if you will, of gamers that you like to either game with in person or you game with online?
0: Um. Well, online, every now and then, I get together with Brent, Brent Cutler, and uh, and uh, Cole Cabana. We do Dead by Daylight. Nice. But in the AEW locker room, there was a FIFA crew. And it was and Helico, me, Miro, Orange Cassidy, the best friends. Like, so it, it wasn't really a video game crew. It was more specifically for FIFA.
1: Wow, you, so, who's who's the who's the best? Who well who's the best and who's the most competitive when it comes to this? Who will literally slam a controller?
0: The most competitive is Orange Cassidy, and he's also the biggest crap talker of all of them. <laughs> and then we goes in second, very close behind him. But uh, Orange brings it over the top, and uh, he's definitely also the most competitive. And the best out of nowhere, no one was expecting it, ended up being John Silver.
1: Wow. Yeah, he just,
0: for a little while, it was like, oh, it's in Helicon Miro Angelico and Helicon like there, Then John just came through and he wiped out everyone.
1: Unbelievable. That is super, super cool. So when did you first get introduced to to video games? I mean, was it like because you are you're younger than I am. You better looking than I am, but you're younger than I am. But we're we're still in that same wheelhouse of like the original Nintendo, you know, and then obviously the, the Sega Genesis and whatnot. Were you in that genre or did you wait to go do video gaming a little bit later?
0: No, I was instantly in on the NES, like old school, like Mike Tyson's Punch-Out, Ninja Gaiden, like all those. And like, everyone forgets it, but another classic that took up so much time in my childhood was DuckTales, like all those. Yes. And then, uh, man, no one ever could like, I don't know what it was about DuckTales that made it so fun, but it was like its own kind of platformer that no one's ever been able to copy. Like, it just somehow it just worked for DuckTales and nothing else. And then, uh, also I was like super Nintendo, like I was a big gamer all the way up until basically the PlayStation three. And then I got out of gaming for quite a while and then I just returned, but I'm a PC gamer now. Nice. So I, what was, is when it- I was young too, but now I'm exclusively a PC gamer.
1: What would you say is the biggest difference between the PC gaming world and the, I guess, console gaming world? Are they they like completely separate factions, the Hatfields and the McCoys? Are they like, oh, you're a computer guy, you're a console guy?
0: uh console players have an inferiority complex because uh <laughs> I love it. pc players are the master waste everyone knows you play on the pc it has more options eventually someone will hack the hell out of your game they'll start modding it they'll put in things you never even knew you wanted but yeah it, it, you, it, in all honesty there's no reason not to be a pc gamer i just want everyone to know that
1: Do you remember anybody chance? uh, And I know this was this was kind of I guess controversial at the time. But Leisure Shoot Larry was uh, a a, a PC game, and uh, I I got started doing that. And the original Carmen Sandiego was uh, was legit. Like you had to that was like pre like CSI shit right
0: there. You had to really know what you were doing. Yeah, no, the original Carmen Sandiego, you had to literally be an investigator. It was like you you could have you'd have to go to like a freaking uh, uh, what is that not a globe like in the book an atlas and like look up like different like, uh, I swear the Carmen San Diego those old like Amiga 500 or whatever yes. like Carmen San Diegos they were freaking crazy oh but uh PC gaming back then though was definitely not as good as console really? gaming because like i don't know it was like what was popular back then like those games where you'd have to like click on something and then be like use shackles or something <laughs> like that you know what i mean like so but they're actually the were and good ones never mind there was like the old Might magic and stuff there, there were some good ones but overall i was a nintendo fanboy nintendo and super nintendo fanboy when i was like that era of pc
1: when did you find out? And once again, I feel like we should be talking wrestling in your in your career. But let me let me ask you: When did you find out that? And I did not find this out, and I feel like a huge schmo for this, but that the if you were doing duck hunt, the person who had the number two controller with the up, down, left, right controlled the ducks. When I found that out, my brain was blown. Did you realize that?
0: Yeah, someone because where I lived in Parkland, like. There's only a couple people that had Nintendo, so everyone would group up around their house, and so if there was a one-player game, someone was playing, someone would just be fiddling with the second-player controller. So someone figured it out like pretty quick, and uh, yeah, it kind of ruined Duck Hunt actually. It made it much harder.
1: Oh yeah, because somebody else is going to be jacking with them damn ducks and messing with you, and then more of the shit talking. Well, could you imagine Orange Cassidy finding that out and going ahead and screwing with the ducks, and then just—it's so funny that you say that because I would never pick him to be a big trash talker, but it shows very little. Oh, I'm that telling you,
0: he is. See what would happen to Duck Hunt with Orange Cassidy? Is he'd get a high score. And then so he'd be totally fine. He wouldn't be crap-talking. And all of a sudden, someone is inching up towards his high score, and that's when the evil side of Orange Cassidy comes out. That's when he's picking up that second-player controller and messing with the Ducks. That's yeah. when he's starting to talk all the crap in the world. So in <laughs> the Orange, it's, it's hidden until, like, uh, it needs to come out.
1: I like it. I like it. So when did you first let me ask you this when did you first get introduced to wrestling in general was it we, we hear a lot of people we do interviews you know I watched it with my grandparents or I watched it with a sibling um, or it was me and my dad we would sit down and watch it and there was a special memory
0: behind being introduced to wrestling what was yours. Uh, my, I actually I remember the first match I ever saw had IRS in it I don't remember who it was wrestling but it was one of those things where I was just flipping across the channels back when TV's at the knob, you know, the, you oh, yeah. remember, you remember, Oh yeah, I, I, know. The knob. I loved it. But, uh, and, I uh, and it just like instantly, it was just so weird compared to everything else on TV. Like I started to watch it and I remember, uh, this was before, don't believe me, but I swear IRS and the Mountie were my first favorite wrestlers because it sounds uh-huh. weird. I didn't understand that they were the bad guys. So when someone pulled IRS's tie or something, I I thought you know, they were the bad one. And then also, something about people wrestling suits. I also, a little bit later on, I was a huge Mr. Hughes fan as well. Nice. And he had the best finisher at the time for that that spinning sidewalk slam. Oh, my goodness. It was amazing. So
1: you're starting to watch wrestling. I'm going to probably put that somewhere around 92-ish, maybe 93-ish um you're watching it it, and those were the guys you were gravitating towards did you ever go or get a chance to go to a live event or was it well after that that you officially got a chance to maybe see a show live
0: the only live event like non-indie live event like i ever went to was wcw spring stampede oh wow blitzkrieg versus hubertud guerra oh Oh, my god i was that was was the biggest blitzkrieg mark ever so it, it was great
1: so you're watching wrestling. Did you grow up with a group of guys or gals or whoever who were also into it as well? Was it something you talked about at school, like? Or, you yeah, know, we guys... had a, I
0: had a little group of friends at school, and we even we did the backyard wrestling and everything. Like, so yeah, there, there's a little there's a little uh, wrestling fan crew.
1: We hear so many wrestlers say they did backyard feds. Um, we were talking to some people; they said in shop class in high school they volunteered for. A show to pass out flyers and whatnot and then they said can we set up the ring and then they actually remembered what they did and they made the frame and shop class and then pulled all their money together to put one in their backyard so a lot of wrestlers started out that way and you know we, we hear so many of these stories but how does a backyard fed start how does backyard wrestling is it just something one one person says. Hey, well, you know what? We should try this. Or are you horsing around? Or what was the uh, the incarnation of well, all that?
0: Yeah, I think it was horsing around, and then it would like it, like slam each other on like pillows in the living room or something, and then it just escalated. Like, hey, let's run our own federation or something. And then when the internet really got big, because back when I was little, it was like more BBSs, like these things called bulletin board systems. But so the internet was like around, but almost no one had it. Like. The only way to get on it was uh, – it used to be charged hourly, the internet. So if you got the internet, it was so. – I'm talking like – I'm sorry, not even hourly. I think it was by the minute, actually, and it was something crazy. I'm talking like fifty a minute or something. So by today's standard, like $3 a minute or something, but I'm talking ex- super expensive. So uh, like – but once it like lessened and everyone got the internet – then everyone got exposed to like each other's backyard feds. You know what I mean? Cause you go on geo cities and see, you know, someone's like backyard fed or whatever. And, uh, so then, oh my God. uh I think that made it where we got like, I don't want to say more serious about it. Cause we were still obviously having fun, but we actually like, we're trying to have like book and like be the best backyard Federation. Like we gotta be better than these guys. You know what I mean? Although, and when it comes to my era of backyard wrestling, no one will ever beat Ruckus's promotion. Ruckus had the best backyard promotion of all time.
1: You know, when it comes to that, did you ever think when you were doing the backyard stuff that eventually this would become something that you really wanted to do? Or were you just kind of living in the moment going, you know what, this is fun? We're horsing around. We're having a good time. We're all wrestling fans. Or did you, was there a certain point where you said, you know what, maybe, maybe.
0: No, I was totally living in the moment up until I actually had like my first match after training and everything. And then I was like, Oh man, maybe I could do this as like something serious. Like but when it went in the backyard, it was just literally like they were living in the moment. Only competition was like I said, like like oh look at what this guy did out in his Wisconsin backyard fed. We gotta be better than that. You know what I mean? Like, but there was no no like serious like thoughts of it being a career
1: were you big into sports middle school high school were you into stuff like that as well or
0: uh baseball and amateur wrestling were my two sports but then uh yeah i just got fell out of them especially actually baseball i fell out of pretty quick i stuck with wrestling for a little bit but so i don't know like yeah so i'd i stopped playing baseball at like 13 and then i stopped wrestling at like 15 or 16. And after that, it was just like breakdancing, freestyle walking. It was basically parkour. And then the backyard fed were like my athletic activities.
1: Yeah, I would assume you probably did really, really well because you're incredibly athletic. I mean, and just agile in what you do. So was it one of those situations where when you started doing more and more of this stuff, you really started to realize you picked up pretty quickly
0: on it? A little bit, but the only thing is... I don't actually feel like I did pick up quickly. I was just stupid enough to keep trying it again and again. Like, you know what I mean? Like, like the like the skateboarder that's trying to hit some big stair set and he keeps falling or whatever. You know, most people just go. I'd be like, yeah, right, I'll give it one more go. Like, so I I actually think I didn't really pick up on it quick. It was just like, uh, I don't know, like stubbornness, I guess. Just like wanted to be able to do yada yada yada. And even if I mess it up, I keep trying. Repetitious practice, I guess, is the easiest way to put
1: it. And persistence,
0: right? Persistence. It, it, yeah, it, persistence. It yeah, there we go.
1: Um. So when you decide, you know what, You know, wrestling is something I want to do, a lot of people have told stories about how they found a place to train or who to train them. Sometimes we would hear people, especially in the East Coast, say, well, there's a lot of different schools. The Monster Factory was a big one. Um, went to the Monster Factory. We did this. We did that. Some people would say, who are, who are a little bit younger than you and I, No offense, but they would say, you know, going online now, you can actually do visits, almost like college campus visits, and you can go down and see different stuff. So how did you find someone when it was time to start training? How did you find
0: someone? Uh, I actually had a friend that had found a local wrestling school and w- Washington wasn't like New York and anything like that, like the dog house they had the I forget their name up in Jersey city. Like that all these different schools, like this was it. And it actually was in Tacoma, which is like right next to Parkland. Like, so it was actually near me. And I swear, I think it was the only professional wrestling school in Washington. And he went there and then uh, like, just like quit almost instantly, but I stayed with it. And uh, it was actually a total 100% like ripoff train trainer like uh, he basically just sat in a lawn chair and didn't do anything and then like we randomly just ran stuff ourselves until Brian came down. So Brian Alvarez actually and he wasn't even getting paid by this guy or anything. It was just like kind of it was hard I guess. So Brian would actually come down and like show the guys drills and stuff like that. So then when he wasn't around, we just copy what he had showed us and everything. So yeah, Brian Alvarez was like, like the part-time trainer unofficially. So he actually is the one that like taught me the basics and everything. And then like the actual trainer, like just didn't do anything.
1: Uh, We've heard that before with people saying that the school is, you know, they got the main name, right. But when you end up going, it's, such and such and such and such. And it's just their name on the building. And unfortunately I feel like a lot of people wind up having stories like that. And it is kind of disappointing, especially training is not cheap. Um, What was it like as far as working with, with Brian, because I'm a, I'll be honest. I'm a big Mark for Brian. Uh, All of his stuff. He's, he's so smooth and his insight is great. And he's Funny. So, what's it? What was it like? You know, working with Brian, and then obviously your relationship as things kind of progressed.
0: No, he's a very nice guy, but as a trainer, he was actually a bit of a sarcastic prick. Like, he wasn't oh, like uh, like military star, drill sergeant, like audio or whatever. But like, man, he would just have like little comments and stuff when you would you messed up and stuff. So he was actually. A, if it wasn't directed at you, kind of funny to train with because he, he is like just just he's a very witty actually he's like just this sarcastic sense of humor uh, when he was training us. But it was good. But like I said, for the most part, like because it wasn't even like so it, there was a big name, and then he was the trainer that you know like the mystery trainer you weren't expecting. He literally just knew that the the school like someone's gonna get hurt. Like not It was like. Basically, we are paying to go do backyard almost. So he, out of the kindness of his heart, he literally just came down like once or twice a week and showed us stuff. So he wasn't getting paid. He wasn't at all like the actual trainer or anything. So they, that was actually very nice of him.
1: I was going to say, if he didn't come down, then obviously it would have been uh, a lot of wasted time, I feel like, right?
0: Oh, yeah, probably. Like, yeah, the I, I don't know what would have happened if I would have even stuck with it if he hadn't come down because it was literally like uh, like I said, you're paid to do background almost. You'd show up to class and like maybe you'd do like some shoulder tackle drop down drill or something like that, and then it would just be like you get in the ring while he sits in the lawn chair and BSs with like his friends or whatever. I like, so friends like so uh, I can yeah, see I don't have a know what would happen for a while. If I didn't come down. Because once Brian came down, then people started to actually be able to kind of form their own classes because we'd be like, okay, well, Brian, like, and he'd come in on like a Saturday or something where it wasn't usually open. And then, so we just, he'd you know, like, oh, Brian showed us this, this, and that, so let's just do that, or you know what I mean? So, like, we'd, we'd have to run our own drills that we learned from Brian over the weekend.
1: So you go through your training during your training, or maybe it was through Brian or somebody else. Did anybody ever go over etiquette? Something we always like to talk about etiquette, meaning how to conduct yourself the way to, you know, to be when you go into a locker room, is it the shake hands? Is it the not shake hands? Is it the, you know, say hello to people or is it the sit down and find a quiet place? What was your etiquette that was instilled in you early on that? Hey, guess what? You're trained now. You're going to go and start doing shows, but this is the way you need to behave.
0: Uh, the, the handshake thing, which was a lot bigger then than this now. Thank God, was taught to me, and that was about it, like etiquette wise. Other than that, it was kind of just like show up in the locker room, figure it out, or whatever.
1: Yeah, sometimes it's it's just on the job training. You you kind of figure it out, and I'm sure yeah, there, everyone no pulled me aside
0: and was like, "Oh, I'll do this, this, and that." Da 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 da. Like, but. You can learn that pretty quick just listening to the gossip of the locker room though, because they'll, they'll always be talking about something and you can just kinda of pick up on like what gets heat and what doesn't and like you know what I mean? Like so no no one ever pulls pulled me aside. I don't think that usually happens. Maybe it does. But uh, you just kinda of can learn pretty quick, you know what I mean? Just from listening and just being around. Like, there are little things, like the handshake thing and stuff. But, I mean, in general, like, you just learn how to carry yourself.
1: Who would you say early on in your career was somebody you could go to and you could pick their brain or ask them about this and that and, and not be worried about, does this sound like a stupid question? Or, you know, you could just really open up
0: to them. Like, wrestling-wise, probably like TJ Wilson, Tyson Kidd. Yes. Because he he's one of the best ever, like, you yeah so underrated these actually probably the best i've ever been in the ring with like just if anything goes wrong or whatever, like he's just the ring general of ring generals and like uh, especially that time him and harry smith uh the british bulldog son david Smith jr yes. they uh they just watched wrestling nonstop and everything so like they they would they were like an encyclopedia for wrestling so definitely them especially tyson Kidd, like tj
1: Speaking of which, uh, it
0: was, if I'm
1: correct, was it Marky Star and TJ Wilson when you had your first match?
0: No, my first match was against this guy Tiger Redding. The Marky Star-TJ Wilson match was, I don't know, I want to say like eight or nine. It was still really low, but that was my first match in Matt Ratz, this promotion in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. Nice. So,
1: Why do I feel like, Matt, was Matt Ratz, gosh, why do I want to say Eric Bischoff was involved in that?
0: Like well, man, I mentioned him on Twitter being involved with it, and he got so mad at me. But him and Jason Hervey, I don't know how involved they were with it, but they showed up and they got like Mandalay Sports Entertainment or something like that to like send uh, – or they showed up and they wanted this guy Graham to like run like a show, like a fairly impressive one, to try to impress these people from – I want to say it was Mandalay Bay Sports Entertainment or something. I can't remember the name. Something like that. And so we always refer to it as the palace show in Matt Rats because it's held in this place called the palace. So they ran this big show that ended up just being an absolute disaster, <laughs> though, and uh, yeah. did nothing but right that night and then uh, bounced on out. So, like, he did have some involvement, but I don't know how much. And he always gets so mad at me when I mention he was involved at all on Twitter. So, like, I'm almost scared. Like, dang, hey, I don't want Bishop, like, who knows it'll he was Sumi or something, but yeah, he he did come around, but I don't know if he actually had a position with the company or anything.
1: And the reason why I bring that up was because I remember vividly that that's what he was doing after WCW went under. That he was involved with Matt Rats. Um, I'm looking online right now here. Gosh, that, that that's just piqued my. Uh, if you go to day.
0: one of like Slam Sports or whatever? They they archived like all of their old. Stuff and th- th- they have some uh, articles on him and Jason Hervey, like like showing up again. I don't want to say, like, I don't know how involved he actually was, but okay. like him and Jason Hervey was uh, was around, or they were around.
1: Yeah, I'm gonna find out more about this because I, I too thought that Matt Ratz um, was once again a, a Canadian uh, promotion, and that it was something that he was involved with. But you know what? We'll, we'll find out more
0: about that. Um, yeah, no, but no, no. I'm telling you, you know what you need to do right after the show? Go on Twitter and message Eric Bischoff about his involvement in Matt Rast. So I'm telling you, he'll get pissed off. Like, I, I was so surprised. I was like, okay,
1: okay. I guess he took it very personal. I mean, good God almighty. There's worse. Than- like, I'm blocked by Jim Cornette. I am blocked by Jim Cornette, and I don't know how many people. Some people say it's a, um, it's a rite of passage. When you're in wrestling podcasting or in general, if you can get uh, blocked by him, he <laughs> hates Kenny Omega and he went off on him and he said some very nasty things, whether you're a fan of a certain wrestler or not, that's yeah. your prerogative, but don't, don't get nasty. And I'm, he said some pretty foul things. And I was like, look, dude, like blah, 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 blah. And, uh, yeah, he went off on me and it ended with something like, fuck you bye, and he blocked me and whatever. But, uh, interesting. So let's let's jump over here to Stampede. Um, what was that like? Obviously, was that your first promotion that you worked with after you were done training?
0: You worked in Stampede. Well, I'll tell you, my first promotion was in Washington called PWF Pacific Wrestling Federation. Okay, but then the Stampede would be like, like in the first. I think I don't know how many. I didn't work. I worked maybe like seven or eight shows for PWF or something like that. So, uh, so Stampede was kind of my first real like wrestling promotion that lasted a while
1: what were some of your favorite memories from working in
0: stampede? No, most of my favorite memories, uh, from stampede are just the, the weird people that were in the Calgary wrestling scene at the time. Like there was just a lot of uh, strange people, but uh, no, the wrestling wise, I didn't have any of these like crazy matches or anything that I would go down and be like, Oh, I'm so proud of that one. It was just out of tape. Like I definitely did some good stuff with TJ and Harry and, and, uh, Ted, but like, no, there there wasn't anything like to write home about. I was like, oh, you should have seen this, like, wrestling wise. Most of my memories from there, like I said, are just it was the most interesting locker room and like general atmosphere in the world.
1: So, in those early days of wrestling, uh, did anybody else ever give you some advice or tips that you remembered, you know, years down the road, like, oh, such and such early in the days? pulled me aside and said this. Anybody ever, ever do that? I mean, I know you said TJ and whatnot, and there were some guys that you really had a lot of respect for, but anybody else that ma- mentioned something that had an impact on you?
0: Not really that I can think of off the top of my head to be truthful. I remember up in the Calgary area, we used to actually have like a list of rules for wrestling, but I never really lived by them or anything. Like, I remember like number one was like don't make your body your gimmick. Number two was... Only be as, or only expect your girl to be as faithful as you are on the road, or something. I can't remember. There, was, but there used to be like this little list of rules of wrestling that they would that people had in, in Canada, like the old schoolers. But they didn't follow it. But I sure didn't. Like
1: <laughs> it was just a little, uh, little guide to how to live your life, right?
0: Or, or like, yeah, how to navigate the wrestling business, like rules. I can't remember what any of them. Like, I remember one was don't make your body your gimmick. I remember one of them was something, I can't remember how it was worded, but like, only expect your girl to be as faithful as you are because she gets over on Saturday nights too or something like that. And then I can't remember, there was like five or six of them, though. I can't, I can't remember the rest. Wow. Wow.
1: Wrestling's a very eclectic industry to work in.
0: Oof, especially that Calgary scene at that time, like just, Oh man, and you just get, especially because I was living with the Hart families, and you just get these weirdos that like, bless their soul, like they're the giant wrestling fans, but they're the ones that bring it just to such an insane level that like, they'd come through and it would just be endless entertainment, like, it it was, that whole Calgary scene was the weirdest wrestling scene (laughs) I've ever been in. So many characters just coming through.
1: Um. One thing that we've talked to some people about is is you kind of touched upon it. Weird fan interactions. Um, anything that stands out to you in those early days, I know you mentioned how some of the fans are kind of eccentric, but any weird fan interactions during a match where like it distracts you or you you notice something in particular and it kind of makes you laugh or
0: No, it's not a weird one, like in a creepy way, but I know the worst fan interaction I ever had was we were in Mazatlan, Mexico, and we were heels. It was me and Ted. And so it was actually after the match. I be- Yeah, it was after the match. And, like, uh, I took the mic or something, and I was like, you play, like, suck my nut. Like, you know, I was like on the, uh, uh, to, uh, on the mic to the fans. And then I remember it happened in slow-mo. Like, I looked down at this kid. Not kid. Like, he was, like, 20-something. but And I just saw he spit. And it flew, and it landed perfectly in my mouth. From there, and I got so fucking pissed <laughs> that I jumped the rail on them, and uh, like uh, K had to broken, like icho had to come and like grab me and stuff because all the fans started to throw chairs and everything. And uh, I got taken to the locker room, quickly put in a taxi, and uh, uh, had to get like shuttled out of there back to the hotel. And right when I came, the military and the police were showing up. And it ended up that little prick was like the cousin or something of some like, like cartel guy or whatever. So it, it like it ended up becoming like this huge incident. And Nicho broke kayfabe and, and like saved me because I guess he knew who the guy was. So like he like Nicho totally broke kayfabe, like grab me, grab me you're come with me, you're effing come with me, and yeah, they had to get me out. of That Rice Hunter came, and yeah, it turned out. But that was just, he knew somebody that you know what I mean, like What are the odds? Yeah, it was, but I I, I judge it. So that wasn't the weirdest thing, but I just, I was so grossed out and I was so mad. And it's the only time I've ever lost my temper like that on a fan that I can think of at least. Yeah, I just jumped the rail on him. And then like like literally like tope style almost. Like I mean like, oh I got like on the floor, not from the apron, but it literally was. Like, it dove onto it. Like, I was so bad. And then, uh, but yeah, there's that. And then...
1: That would be cool if that was somewhere on video somewhere. If that was like... Uh, but
0: That mazalon promoter did used to tape all of his stuff because he was always trying to sell it to local TV. So uh, there might be uh, recorded somewhere, but... Somewhere where...
1: Tope Suicida onto some schmuck kid who spit at you and it went in your mouth.
0: Uh, Oh, yeah. And then freaking almost started a riot. Ended up having to be escorted. I was so scared, though, because right when I saw the military coming and everything, I was like, why in the hell would they be here? And, like, Nietzsche broke it down for me later why, like, got so serious and who that guy was and everything. But, like, yeah, I I was so scared in my hotel. Like, I was thinking someone's going to kick in the door, like,
1: so, was there any ramification? I mean, did did they end up saying anything to you, or was it just
0: no, everything was fine that uh, that was actually the last time that promoter used me for like a year or something. <laughs> so, so you did go back? I did eventually go back, but I he used to love me because where I'm from Parkland, Washington there's a university called Pacific Lutheran University, uh-huh. and his daughter went there. So, like, we just had this connection that his daughter went to, like, university in the small town that I'm from, like, so he, he loved me, loved me, loved me, and like, he used me every show, like, once or twice a month, and then that incident happened, and, like, I, I didn't go back for at least a year, maybe longer, it was forever.
1: Yeah, but people could understand why you'd be pissed. I mean, I think anyone in that situation, are, are you supposed to expect it to, hey, no matter what fans do... Keep it together. Unless they jump the guardrail, then you're allowed to beat their ass. But anything you, you, short well, of that... It,
0: it, I think it was mainly just that uh, it probably po- caused problems with the cartel. Because who that guy was related to. The cartel. Oh, my... Yeah, yeah. No, no. I that's why so it rented. was so serious. and He's trying to drag me out. Because he's like the cousin of a cartel guy or something like... So it, it wasn't just like a normal fan. If it was a normal fan, they probably would have been mad. Like, what are you doing? But I think like they probably got a talking to, they might even have to like pay money. Like I don't even know, but, or maybe nothing happened, but. Wow.
1: Wow. Let's talk about the early days. Um, a lot of times we talk to wrestlers and they say, you know, I barely got paid anything or it didn't even cover my gas or whatnot. Um, in your experiences, was that without giving dollar figures not to get private, was that something you found to be pretty accurate? Like, my gosh, um barely oh, yeah. even getting sure. anything if you got something at all.
0: Yeah, then there there'd be the, the free show stuff when you're first starting out. Like like my first until Matt Rats, I didn't never got paid for wrestling, like for that uh Pacific Wrestling Federation or whatever, it was just like free, you know, just for for experience or whatever. And then so yeah, when you're first starting out and even not not when you're first starting out, like for a while like you have to make it like kind of high up on the card before you can really actually like have wrestling as your normal like job like so
1: was there a moment where you uh you finally started climbing up the the ranks in the indie and you finally realized you know okay this is where obviously I need to be doing to obviously get some type of financial compensation because anything below that you know, you're almost working for free. You're almost volunteering your time.
0: Honestly, I never, like, I obviously wanted to make as much money as possible or whatever, but, like, I had just this nomadic, like, couch surfing style about me that it wasn't until Japan that I actually really started to, like... Because Japan, was the first time I got paid, like, really well in Dragon Gate. So that was when I started to think about, like, the money more so, like... You know what I mean? Because uh, before, it was just, like... I work for whatever I work. It's food. It'll get me home. Blah, blah, blah. Like, it's just like day to day, live, like carefree kind of style. Like, not that it wasn't stressful, but you know what I mean? I, I had no like plans for me. live in the moment. That's what it was. And then it was after in Japan and Dragon Gate, like 2006, seven, or somewhere around there. That's when I started actually like, Oh man, no, I can't just be working like ladder match for a hundred dollars. You know what I mean? Like I am, Worth more, I guess, or I have to start charging more, and I have started thinking about the finances. And blah, blah, blah.
1: Is it hard to, at that time, you know, even save some of the money? Because I feel like with food, with gear, with a lot of things, nutrition, travel, there really isn't anything left
0: to even sock away, is there? Not usually. Even, usually, even if you save. <laughs> Uh, you, you save up a bit of money something happens like some extracurricular crap happens and you it ends up wiping that out so you're like well thank god i saved money but at the same time like so like uh you know what i mean like i'd save the japanese money or something and then i'd break my face or whatever and then or like in lucha or not lucha in wsx mtv just dropped a whole bunch of money on me at once and so I went out and I got uh, a GSX, freaking whatever. I can't remember the name of the car now, this infinity And so sometimes it's not even about the not being able to save it. It's that, like, you're not able to save it because of your own lack of willpower, I guess. Because, you know, I did not need an infinity. I was almost never home. I almost never drive. But after that WSX, I was like, I got the money. I'm getting an infinity.
1: Um, let's, we talk about money and whatnot. Let's also talk about gear. We talk to people in, in getting gear, getting quality gear sometimes can be hard. Uh, early on, a lot of different wrestlers tell us they, you make shift with whatever you got. So when it came to, Hey, you know what? I need to have gear. Where did you go? Or was there somebody who knew somebody who would kind of help you? Was there any hand-me-downs or did you get put in contact with somebody who said, Hey, give this person a phone call. They can, They can help you out with gear
0: no when i first started i had like the malibu's most wanted gimmick so i literally just showed up in like sweatpants and sneakers and that was the gimmick so i I wrestled in that so like when i first started out i saved massive amounts of money on gear just because like my gimmick was like street clothes and stuff and then uh it wasn't until again japan that i uh started like worrying about gear and presentation more and all that And that's when I realized how expensive it actually is because it's like – if you want, like, good kick pads and everything, it's going to be a couple hundred bucks. Like, so your gear adds up really bad. And if you really want to go all out, like uh, Johnny Mundo, Johnny Progress, Johnny Lee, John Morrison, like, his coats and stuff, those are literally thousands of dollars. So uh, I didn't personally have any hand-me-downs or anything, but if you ever notice – Uh, I very rarely switch gear, and that's why, because, and I live in Mexico, where it's much cheaper than the United States, so even then, so gear, uh, the amount of money you spend on gear, I think it is a tax write-off, though, so. Oh, it's it's work-related, absolutely,
1: write that shit off. Yeah,
0: but it it uh, it is a definite, like, financial burden when you're first starting out, because like literally like every couple months you spending like 500 bucks or something on new gear like well depending on who you are too though like like i said but for me whenever i get new gear it's a coat it's gloves it's kick pads it's knee pads it's the shorts or pants and like so it doesn't. It sounds like it's a but like well it sounds like it's expensive but the amount you get it's like almost like normal clothing price like it's a good bargain yeah good quality
1: so how do you decide i notice this generation of wrestlers are more they're starting to segue more into the kick pads and not more so the wrestling boots in your opinion what's the difference and why do you think some i know it's just preference and, and comfortability and all whatnot but what would you say would be the reason why you would be more kick pad than than traditional boots
0: um Hey, like it is comfortability. Something about that tightness of that kick pad on your leg, like just feels good. I understand it. Then obviously you can just kick without worrying about like digging your shin into the guy. Ga- you know what I mean? Because you don't you don't place your kick right, even if it's just a kick to the leg. But you don't have the you don't have the the shin pad on. Like you'll just from Muay Thai grind your shin into his thigh and try to or something. So like. It, it just makes certain things easier and guys more willing to take your stuff like the guy'll let you give him some kind of crazy you know spin kick to the head a lot more often with kick pads on than he will if it's just you know he's risking bare shit in the face so and then uh, I also think it just looks cooler I, I don't know that sound like no, it like, I, like uh, I just think there's just something about it like. A lot of kick pads, I th- are worn by people that I don't even think really are kickers. It's just like this wrestling accessory. Like it just, it's a place where you can add a little bit of color and design or something more so than you could just on traditional boots. So, and uh, I think it's a little bit like the style. You can just kind of, it has a little bit more flair than the traditional boots. The kick pad.
1: Jerry Lind was telling me um, he and I are good good buddies. Uh, he's saw him the other week. He's a funny guy, funny, funny guy. Um, he said he paid super crazy. I forget how much, and this was years and years and years ago, but he said, he's, he said, super crazy. He said, go get your boots in Mexico. He said, I'm going home for a while before WCW loop was going to start. He said, you know what? I'll go ahead and get you boots. And evidently boots were, I guess at that time, substantially cheaper in Mexico than they were
0: obviously in the United States. Wrestling have... boots have always been the craziest, most expensive thing. I forgot about that gear. Guys that wear wrestling boots, they're paying two or three hundred dollars for those, at least. Like yes. The social... Anyway, sorry to interrupt.
1: No, no, no. You're fine. It's just he was saying that that Jerry was running into that situation where it was like, okay, this is ridiculous. You know, I'm trying to make money, trying to put a little away, and I'm spending all this money on boots. And I guess I want to say it was super crazy. Said, no, let me go down to. I don't know if it's Tijuana or whatnot. Let me go ahead and get you some boots. But I've noticed now when you watch a lot of wrestlers, I wonder if that also is is a factor. I mean, listen, that, that stuff's expensive.
0: It, it definitely is a factor. I think if, uh, obviously when you get to like the bigger, using like a WWE, AEW, it's different. But when you're on the indies, even if you're like a top indie guy or whatever, like again, spending a couple hundred bucks like that on boot, like that's a big, the think, change. so if I think if wrestlers had a uh, uh, like an endless budget for their wardrobe, like they would uh, dress or whatever, a, a lot different, and uh, and maybe even switch over to boots because they are so cheaper, so much cheaper. Because I never thought of that, but yeah, the kick pad and wrestling shoe combo is literally like a third of the price of a, a wrestling boot, and especially if you get those tall boy wrestling boots, they're even more expensive.
1: The uh so, the F the FTR old school ones,
0: yeah,
1: wow. Um, so you're wrestling. Things are going well. You're starting to build up some confidence here. You'd you'd work some spots in uh in ROH. I mean, actually, you had a pretty good uh stint there with several matches. What was your impressions of ROH early on in the early two thousands?
0: Well, that's like my home promotion. I loved it. ROH was just a super fun time. Like uh one of the best locker rooms I've ever been in and just so many legends came through. So you it like it almost is like uh almost means more now to be in that locker room than it did then because now you got I mean from homicide, AJ Styles, Christopher Daniel, Samoa like just everyone that came through that you know I gotta share a locker room with in ROH is it's, it's like an honor style. Like a lot of them went on to do big things and so yeah, I have nothing but fond memories of ROH.
1: ROH is interesting because, you know, you talk about different promotions that have the longevity in wrestling and, you know, you had ECW who had definitely its niche market, but you definitely had ROH. They had their hardcore people that were like they would eat, sleep and breathe ROH. What do you think, in your opinion, at that time made ROH like such a desirable place to be? Was it the locker room and the success of the people who had come through or was it just the fact that it was such a well-respected place to work?
0: Um, wait, I'm sorry. Say, say the question again. What made our yeah. such a special place?
1: Yeah. What, what would you say made it so special? I mean, there's tons of talent there that you mentioned yeah. before, but was it just a promotion that was run super well and it was just like, man, it's easy to come work, work here.
0: Um, well, I think what ended up happening is it almost became like, uh, what would it be like? The Champions League of like at least indie wrestling or whatever. Like, if, if to play in the Champions League, you have to earn your spot. If you get so like ROH for a little while, like even if you were only there once, it was like a badge of honor. Like I wrestled for ROH. You know what I mean? Like that was like for like the hardcore, like not pure wrestling, but you know what I mean. Like not necessarily mainstream wrestling fan. That that was like the badge of honor of all honors. for like, oh, he's wrestled for ROH. You know, like. Uh, that's the most important thing you can do, you know, almost to them. So it it had this uh the ROH back then it had this aura of like what yeah, like being in the Champions League. Like if you were an ROH you wrestled for ROH, you were you were something special. Like that proved something, you know what I mean? It didn't matter, you know, if you had five star matches and every other promotion or whatever. If you hadn't wrestled in ROH, you hadn't been in like Again, I do not say the big leagues like a WWE, but like the big leagues of the Indies or whatever. It, just, it had this weird vibe where, and what that did was it caused everyone, it, it like almost put a little bit of a pressure on everyone to perform harder. So uh, it, you ended up getting like this not only like incredible booking, incredible talent and everything, but that talent was at 100% work rate because, again, just all which had this like air of like, being the elite almost, you know what I mean? So so that, that's what made Orwich special, I think, because it it got this air of, like, it made you want to try harder, even if, you know what I mean, you weren't making, like, the craziest amount of money. And just be, for, like, reputation, it was, like, yeah.
1: Who, uh, who brought you into Ring of Honor? Who was the, your contact, or who was the person who said, you know what we'd like to bring you
0: in? Uh it was actually Ted got me in through Rob Feinstein, the original owner, but then that whole Perverted justice thing happened. I don't know if you know about that. Yep. But yep. and then uh and then you know, I like I busted my ass in that in this cage match and like you know did like one and a half moonsault the double moonsault the K, like all, all the like Jack Evans high flying stuff, like the the best versions of it I could do. So I got brought back, but Ted actually didn't because there's this whole incident where, after the match, even though he lost, he started to do moonsaults off of the cage onto the ring and like cheer the crowd on and like totally going into business for himself style. He said he had a concussion, maybe he did. But what is there's footage of it too and i was just so glad I didn't get wrapped up in that cuz I go and I try to pull him out cuz I'm like what the hell is he doing and then the carnage crew come from the back with a belt and they start whipping the shit out of the both of us because they whip the crap out of the both of us and I'm like man this is the most unfair crap ever I literally I stopped selling on the floor just to go in to get him out and for my troubles I get whipped like three or four times so goddamn hard with his belt But man the who gave it to Ted bad like laceration style so uh, they didn't bring Ted, uh, they did bring Ted back once after that but uh, they brought me back and then no longer him sorry for the babbling story but
1: no no that's good um holy yeah he had to have been concussed at that point I mean
0: something, yeah well, uh, something happened yeah yeah because he, he was puking in the ring and everything and I didn't know that I should be blown up or maybe it was a concussion or whatever but uh, yeah he was doing a little salts to his feet from the top like I'm i think he did it from all four corners at least like two of them and then like and we had lost so like we we're supposed to be in the back and like uh who was it? the backstreet boys the ones that had won and i'm pretty sure they were already in the back at this point like that's how long extra he stayed and like was just you know just going, to just trying, trying to milk the crowd for all the pops he could, kinda. And uh, yeah, the locker room wasn't happening.
1: Wow, unbelievable. That's wow. Um, you you mentioned before you had alluded to this, but I'm I'm really interested. Dragon Gate, um, great promotion. I know you said you really enjoyed your time over there as well. Tell me a little bit about some of your experiences and in, in what you enjoyed the most about your time in Dragon Gate.
0: And Dragon Giant joined Japan as a whole. Like, it was a really fun country and everything. But uh, Dragon Gate, man, there were just uh, like some crazy stories that I don't even want to share. But, like, yeah, uh, Dragon Gate at that time was owned by this guy, Okamura, who was super Yakuza connected. So, one of the best experiences you wouldn't think it would be but was going out with Yakuza sponsors because, oh, my God, they would get you anything if you passed by like a shop and like they just caught you like looking in an outfit in the window. They're going to buy like – so that was one of the best experiences was I know it sounds so crazy, but having a boss that's Yakuza-affiliated affili- because, man, when he would take you out on those special shows, uh, they'd take you out with those guys. But this is the weirdest thing. Ishima would come with me sometimes, and he'd be like, Jack, Jack, please, maybe tonight – baka Gaijin, like stupid foreigner stupid foreigner so they wanted you to get drunk as hell just eat as much as you could just make it like i, I don't know how to explain it but like uh they, they wanted like like almost like a non-japanese experience with you so like yeah they we'd, we'd get together and like just you know like be baka Gaijin, just like stupid foreigners or whatever and the yakuza people would just eat it up for some reason and so those, those were good times because They just take you everywhere and pay for everything. And then, uh, but wrestling wise, it was my, it's my, to this day, it's still my favorite style in all of wrestling. Like that lucha libre, pudonessu, Japanese style, like combination. Like, uh, I think that's the best. So, not only was it just fun living in Japan and those occasional Yakuza sponsors coming out, but like it was, I think, the time where I enjoyed the actual act of wrestling more so. And I think I learned the most, more, but more so than any other time. So I just, I loved how they did things in Dragon 8, like how they set up a match, like everything.
1: <laughs> how were the fans interacting when it came to an American coming over? Was it, was it literally, you know, just something that they were really excited as far as a foreigner coming over? Because I've heard a bunch of stories about, you know, when Americans go over to Japan, it it's a big deal. And, you know, it's, it's something different. Yeah,
0: but I I also think it depends on who you are or whatever, because like when I went over there, in all honesty, I was kind of pretty quickly... Of course, I went over there once, and then the second time I went over there, I just started to stay. I do three months on, one month off, like, tours or whatever. But I was pretty quickly just kind of, like, accepted as part of the Japanese wrestling scene. Like, obviously, I was still a foreigner or whatever, but they never really made that big of a deal out of like me being a foreigner or whatever like i don't know like they call me the chojin or whatever like the Birdman or something and like but i don't know there's just never a really big deal made about me being a gaijin and that might have been because like i said once i started to go over there like i just started to stay in japan like three times as much as america so i think i was over there so much that that's why like the japanese wrestling magazines and stuff just kind of like oh yeah it's just over here now like
1: what was the uh what was the social scene like uh over there definitely uh a lot of time to, to have fun and a lot of things to get into or no i mean i'm not oh yeah to, to right, that's why me, i lost but, my like... job
0: as i i swear not like a crazy one but i became a little bit of an alcoholic in japan it was too much fun like that those are those my party years but osaka like everyone always talks about tokyo and everything and you never hear about it i'm telling you osaka is the best party city there's ever been they this place club heaven that was open Thursday night or morning. I would say Thursday night and it didn't close till Monday morning. So you'd go there and you'd just get blackout drunk and you'd wake up at literally like three o'clock in the afternoon and there'd be other people like on the floor like drunk too or whatever. And just get up and you're just still at the bar. And then you either like go get food or continue drinking, or whatever. But, like, so you could have, like, almost these three-day or, like, two-and-a-half-day party weekends in Club Heaven and, like, um, ugh, yeah, And uh, oh, man, there was this other little club where they, like, had a little bookcase and you, like, pulled the book and there's a secret VIP room and everything. Like, yeah, Osaka. And I lived in Kobe, which was, like, a 30-minute train ride from Osaka. Right. So I got plugged in my phone. So, like, yeah, I went out in Osaka all the time and Kobe. It was It was, it was actually bad for me. uh, definitely definitely a fun place japan tokyo too but nothing uh, like the kansai area or whatever they call it osaka kobe kyoto those are the places um ribera
1: did you ever get a chance to uh to hang out and at least go there and because I've I've heard the food is okay. That's not really the thing that brings people in. It it's really what well, it was a mom and pop diner that started, and then all of a sudden it became this cultural phenomenon.
0: I thought the steak was really good. Not like the craziest I've ever had or anything, but it's basically like a really juicy, like good quality steak, which is a crap ton of salt though. Like it's salty as hell. But the big thing about Ribera is everyone always wants the Rivera jackets. <laughs> and at one point mm-hmm. I had three. I got one when I went to Wrestle Jam, mm-hmm. one for Dragon Gate, and then an extra one because Ted, even though the guy didn't speak mm-hmm. English, somehow bs mm-hmm. this guy into giving him like this cool-ass like, silver Ribera jacket, an extra one. They started knocking out those the, the Ribera jackets to, mm-hmm. wrestlers, to wrestlers. I don't know if you've ever seen them. That was a big I thing have. in wrestling. If you ever went to Japan, yes. you always wanted a Rivera jacket. And they, they started to get hard to get. So, And t- then I had another one that Ted said he was going to give to Stu Hart. Uh, so the guy, you know, he was obviously like this huge Brent fan and everything. So it was like, yeah, yeah. So Ted got an extra Ribera jacket that he forgot on the plane and I took. So <laughs> that that's my big thing. And I don't know what happened to any of them. But there were so many guys at that time that wanted Rivera jackets I was like, oh man, I have three. I'll bring it to you. I'll bring it to you. And I never did. So sorry for flanking on whoever that was. <laughs> but, so when, uh, you,
1: when you're over there wrestling, obviously the audience is different than what it is in here in the States, where, I, I don't know the way to describe it. Maybe you could put it into better words. It's very respectful, but it isn't, from what I understand, as hyped up and interactive as the crowds are in the States. Am I accurate on that, or...?
0: Kind of uh mm-hmm. they're they're definitely different, but the thing is uh they they like mm-hmm. the Japanese crowds can get just as hype, not more hype than anyone, but they really only respond like that to the stars, like for most matches, it is like you get a little oh and golf claps and everything, so they definitely can go crazy and everything, and it depends on where you're at, like choerkin is a little bit more uh, of like a normal crowd but the uh, or normal like they just pop for whatever but most japanese crowds are like that where like you'll do a cool whatever and then like like oh and then they can, like give a clap or whatever but it won't be a big loud ah, until you get to the start like once you have like the kintas and stuff wrestling they like will lose it and stuff but uh the weird thing about japan is what they really like is showing, like, fighting spirit, like, uh, like Yamato Damashi, And so, like, you could lose, but if you look like you gave it your all, like, they'll, they'll still love you or whatever. So, like, when you see those strong style spots where, like, one guy gets hit and the other guy gets hit and the other guy gets hit, and, oh, he's going down, but then all of a sudden he hit of a sudden That came from that because it, it was... Like even when someone's getting like beat 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 down, with they get a sudden like rush of energy and flurry and go out on the guy. The Japanese crowd loves that. So like I had a little gimmick. I'd be getting beat up and taking the heat or whatever, and then I would just scream out Yamato damashi and then just go and you know like on fire like a comeback style on whoever I was wrestling for a little bit. And then I take the pin and lose, but you'd still get super over just because you showed such heart and like fighting spirit, like
1: almost the brave heart type of thing, you know, yeah you're gonna
0: kill me, but I'm gonna
1: I'm going down swinging.
0: Yeah, yeah. Like they, they love that. So if you can somehow like you know, in, in the wrestling world, like paint that picture to them, that's what gets over the most, I think, to the Japanese crowd, is that like fighting spirit, like Evo knew he was down and out. He gave it his all. Even when he had zero percent chance of winning, he went out. You know what I mean? Like, and, he, uh, and also he- when it comes to interaction, it again depends on the match. Like obviously when doing like a Kendo Kobashi match or something, but they in the comedy matches you can interact with the Japanese crowd really well. Like I used to, I'd get drop kicked out and I'd sit in the lap of some girl. And then, like, i just start, like, talking or whatever, and the wrestler would call me back in the ring, and then I'd be like, shnampa, like, girl hunting or something. I don't know exactly what it meant. And everything. And then, like, I'd look through the crowd, like, I'd point at him, like, can you believe this? And, like, they'd start screaming things and stuff. So, like, in certain situations, they're very interactive. But, again, it just all depends. It's not going to be like that in certain kind of matches. But if you're in, like, a comedy, stalker, Chikawa match, you can actually interact really well with the Japanese crowd
1: did they get big crowds or big audiences as far as when you were over there? Like what would be a, a traditional size audience?
0: Um, it just depends because how dragon gate did it is they would do like a tour up one side of Japan and then like come back like to home base, like on the other. So they, they go like all up the West coast and come back to the East or whatever. And the further you got North, it felt like the, like, uh, there was less people. And then like the closer you got to like the major metropolitan areas, there was more. So I don't know what the average would be between them, but like in like closer to like Osaka and Tokyo and stuff, like thousands, like, like two to 5,000 to be average. And then they ran, you know, really big shows. That would be like 15,000 plus or whatever. But then once you're in like, you're going North, you're in like more like country style town or whatever it could be anywhere from like 300 to 800 you know what i mean like so it just depends did you
1: feel like the pay was was better uh, abroad than it is domestically
0: at that time it definitely was and the other thing is uh dragon gate ran more than any other company in japan and i think in the world in the time that i was there so you'd have like 200 shows in one year. Yeah. Some of them would be weird. Like they had this one time there was like golden week, uh, in Japan where everyone has off and it's like this vacation time, whatever. And so you'd be doing these little fairs where you wrestle two or three times a day. And like the easiest, like those are the comedy matches where you're sitting there, like pretending to be flirting with girls in the audience and stuff like, and, and just the easiest matches, but you get paid for each match. So like you just be in one spot for seven days, but you do like twenty one shows or something. You know what I mean? And then they'd go the next day do a show, next day do a show, next day do a show. So they they toured all the time. Then you get a big like one or two week break, and then they just go on the grind again. So the thing with Japan for me was not only was I getting paid better per match. But it was just the craziest amount of work. Actually, no, Mexico was like that, too, when I first came here. But it was amongst – it was just the amount of shows. Like, you just wrestled so much that there was always money in your pocket. like wow. Until you drank it away at Club Heaven.
1: I yeah. was going to say, until you, uh, until you go ahead and you party from Thursday to Monday morning and then things oh, man.
0: change. Oh, man. You know, Masada, he was there with me some of those times. And I've never seen anyone – they can stay upright on their feet like him. Uh, man, I don't know how he does it, but I'm talking, he got pissed drunk before me. I ended up blacking out and I woke up, and I want to say it was 11 o'clock in the morning. And he's there at the bar, like talking to these people, still in the exact same state, but has not passed out yet. Like it was, but no, there's there a lot of good times there, but do not spend that much money on drinking. That's why this generation is smart. They're not going out to the clubs. They're not wasting their money.
1: Who's a fun person to, uh, whether it's the United States or wherever, just a fun fun person to hang out with in general? Like if you're going to go out to eat, if you're just going to sit around the hotel, who is fun? Literally anywhere you go, just, you know what? I can have a good time with this person anywhere.
0: Willie Mack. Oh, for sure. Willie Mack. I don't. I just. I enjoy like his whole vibe and presence. Everything is hilarious. He does these stone cold impressions. And Helico's a good guy to hang out with. Uh, Orange Cassidy is another good one. As long as you don't get him into a competitive state. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to think. Yeah. Oh, Ortiz. Ortiz is one of the most chill guys to hang out with over in AEW. Santana too. Uh, I'm trying to think. <laughs> If you're going to go out in Mexico, you want to go out with Conan. Um, yeah, that's all I can think of right now. Yeah, because I was
1: I was going to kind of merge into uh, the time that he had spent with uh, with with AAA in Mexico as well. Because I feel like I feel like in a lot of ways, and tell me if you agree with this that. I don't want to say the wrestling experts or whatever you want to call them, the talking heads. They're against a lot of the Japanese style and Mexican style and and the wrestling with Puerto Rico because they feel like it's a bunch of spots. What's your take on people who say, Oh, that was just a big spot fest. When in reality, I thought it was great. I love the athleticism that it takes to do those things. Why do you think that some people use that phrase so often? Well, that was just a big spot fest
0: uh i think it's partly that they just don't like that style like the kind of wrestling they want to see is uh more technical like trying to be a a little bit more like realistic and everything so it's not even because i mean i don't think most people realize this the most spots you'll ever run in a match is during chain wrestling so like so if it comes to just a memorized sequence of moves, which is what a spot is, then they would hate chain wrestling. Uh, so I actually think it's, they don't want to see literally like the flippy shit, the martial art, like they want that grounded wrestling, you know what I mean? Where like, like it, that it's presented just yeah. not in that kind of cause Lucha Libre presents itself w- without shame. That's just an absolute spectacle. You know what I mean? Right. And I think that a lot of people that dislike like spot wrestling or like Lucha Libre and stuff, they just want that old school grounded, you know what I mean? Like Greco like Memphis style or whatever. So yeah. it, it's, I almost think it's not that they hate like Lucha Libre or like flipping or anything it's that they kind of see that as present preventing them from getting the kind of wrestling they want. Cause you know, that kind of like Memphis old school style, it's not around. So I think if there was like a promotion like that, that was like doing fairly well or anything, I actually think a lot of the criticisms uh, would die down of like spot wrestling and everything. But I, I, I think that a lot of those people, like I said, it's to them, like, the high flying, the spots, everything—that's the taking attention away, and like people marketing wrestling that way, and that's not the way they want it to be. They want it to be that old school Memphis style. If that makes any sense?
1: No, it does. <laughs> it, it completely does. Uh, talk a little bit about Mexico as far as what that's like—the culture, the lifestyle—what makes it so appealing? Because you're in Mexico right now, correct?
0: Yep, I'm in Mexico City.
1: So what, what would you say really drew you yeah, not only to the wrestling scene there, because it's it's a very popular, it's a very generational type of thing. It's
0: it's got a lot of respect
1: as well. Um what very you generational. Like
0: in, in, uh, you're gonna not mess with Alvarados. I'm telling you this right now. You go to Mexico, you leave the Alvarados alone. <laughs>
1: <laughs> what what makes it so much fun just obviously living there as well, as as opposed to in the States?
0: Um Well, just because I know most of the time when people hear stuff about Mexico on the news or whatever, it's like all the craziest things or whatever, which does happen. I can't say it doesn't, but that's in like isolated areas and like these drug routes or everything. The actual day-to-day living in somewhere like Mexico City is just, A, everything is much cheaper, and then B, except for like the way they drive, like it's just like a more polite living. Like, I don't know, like I know all my neighbors, sometimes they come over and like, just randomly bring me like uh, mole and stuff. So there's just this vibe here that reminds me of how my neighborhood was in America in the nineties. Like there's this big community spirit and I don't get that in America anymore. Like when I went back to my hometown or whatever, like Gagne park was dead. There's no one in there. Like, so like here I can go down right now and I could probably find someone to play like handball with, uh, or something. So for me, it's just the generalized style of how like people in Mexico are. They still have this like community spirit. There's a lot more like face-to-face interaction, and uh, I don't know. They don't seem so like odd. I'm gonna but like a lot of Americans almost seem agoraphobic. Like, they just don't go out, but Mexico, everyone's out, and like I don't know how to explain it, but you just have this different vibe with the way it rolls, and I really <laughs> like it. So that's what attracted me to Mexico but uh, what attracts me now to stay here. At first, the reason I went to Mexico was because I broke my face and lost my job from drinking and missing, like, well a whole bunch of stuff in Japan so like I, I was I had to, I lost everything kind of like had to move back into my parents everything and then Conan called me up and he got me down to Mexico so it was almost like oh this is a new opportunity let me explore you know like down here like down there because I got nothing else really going right now like I was in Japan so long I kind of lost my name a bit on the Indies like nothing uh, you know what I mean so, uh, uh, but then when I got down to Mexico, it just like, it, it fits me like perfectly. So that's why I stayed is cause like I said, like, it, it's just people are like just more outgoing on their day-to-day living. I don't know how to explain it.
1: How was, how was it like during the pandemic down there?
0: uh at first like it was like not like people had masks and that was it like no one cared and then actually it started to lock down like fairly hard a little bit into the pandemic so like you could go outside and get groceries and everything but like clubs were closed uh, restaurants were closed except for takeout like that whole thing so they didn't have restrictions but it wasn't like absolutely like there was no curfew or anything
1: So you've wrestled obviously in America. You've wrestled in Japan. Now you're over in in Mexico. Would you say that as a wrestler, you change up some things depending on where you're at? Or would you say universally you kind of do the same thing? Or are there things that you nuances that you do differently depending on where you're at that resonate with the crowd more than others?
0: No, you definitely switch it up. Like in Mexico, especially on like the house shows and like the smaller towns and everything, it's almost like uh, you're almost like talking to the crowd more than you are wrestling. Like you interact with the crowd so much and like, that's just like how they like it. Like you could do double moves on everything and it won't get like uh, near the pop is like one guy that has like a funny comedy spot or something. So, you do definitely uh, switch up how you wrestle. And then also in Mexico, how matches are set up is differently where like usually a lot of times you just straight up start with the heat and then like go to the comeback and then, uh, the, or you go to the comeback then after the comeback in America, it usually be false finishes. You know what I mean? Like you hit all your big moves. One, two, okay. Got a last second in Mexico. That's where the high spots come in right there. And then the high spots lead to the false finishes and then the finish. So the actual, like in Japan, like they do some things differently, especially dragon gate where you'll get double heats, where even like the face team will get a little bit of a heat, like in the beginning of the match, but it's, they're basically the same, how the matches are set up. But in Mexico, like like I said, it's just the weirdest thing. But the high spots are stuck right in the middle of the match, and they lead right into the falsies. So that was that took me like the, the, the longest time to get used to, and especially because uh, I do now. I've been training my ass off, but uh, I didn't have the best cardio before. And if you don't have good cardio, you want your high spot in the beginning of the match. So <laughs> oh, yeah, you'd be taking all this heat, you'd be doing a comeback, yada yada yada, and all of a sudden you got to do a high spot, and like oh God, no it wasn't working for me. I can't perform like this. But so the, the wrestling wise, Mexico is probably the most different because it literally like and a lot of times at the house shows they don't on TV, but they still do rounds. So like <laughs> you'll have like first round is a jump start and the rudos go over. Then second round like there's a big comeback in the faces. So like you've set the match completely differently when there's rounds.
1: Would uh would would booking or agenting be something that you would wanna do when you decide that you don't want to wrestle anymore? It sounds like you have a really good understanding and grasp for this as far as, you know, just different styles internationally. Would that be something that would pique your interest?
0: Maybe, but I don't know how good I'd be at it, because I've never been very good at like structuring the matches together. My whole thing is just like I consider myself one of the easiest wrestlers to work with. Like unless it's really dangerous and scary, like I don't reject any idea I'm just like yeah, you do you. You do me. And we'll see what happens. So, like, I don't know if I'd be that good of an agent or not. Maybe I could do it. I don't. I've never really thought about it. But I think the kind of person you want for an agent is like a Chris Hero, Christopher Daniels, Frankie Kazarian. Where I call them stages of wrestling. Where like if if you're in the match specifically and something goes foobar as hell, those are the guys you want they'll fix it, they'll figure out how to get the match going forward and everything, and they just have this great mind for wrestling, so I think those are the kind of guys that should be like agents again, maybe I could do it because I do have a lot of like kind of little weird knowledge from around the world of all the different wrestling styles, but I've never really been like that, like super smart wrestler. Like I've always been the work harder, not smarter guy. Like I get over on the big stunts more than anything. So who would
1: you say right now has the best wind that you've ever worked with? I mean, just cardio, just out the, out the wazoo. Like, do you ever get tired? Is anybody like that, that you're like, Holy
0: shit. Uh, my match with Kenny Omega—it it wasn't exactly that, but we had to cut out so much because I just got way too blown, and I—I I was a neurotic mess before that match because I was just like, man, I don't embarrass myself and just directly say it, but I was trying to like give Kenny every hint in the world that there's no way I was gonna—I knew I was like, I'm not gonna be able to do all this, Kenny. There's just no way. That's what I wanted to say, but I didn't. And I should have, because with that, like, again, it wasn't exactly the same situation where I just laid down and said, pin me. But I, I literally was like, we got to go home. We got to go home. Like, <laughs> I was done. I was done. But uh, for me, Flamita has some crazy cardio. Man, it, it, he switched up a style a little bit now. When Flamita, this luchador, first started, he used to do like 20, like, like a a spot with like 25 different sections and he so he's up there brian danielson's up there and then strangely enough you know who actually is probably number one and it's not someone you think homicide homicide has the craziest wrestling cardio you've ever seen and just cardio in general like he can sit there and do like these burpees and sandbag wearing for like an hour straight and then like No one like you just can't compete. Like it's actually pretty amazing. So I'd say actually Homicide is the guy that uh, maybe has the best wrestling cardio. Wow.
1: When it comes to wrestling, what do you prefer more? Do you do you like the tag team more? Do you like singles more? Or is it one of those situations where it depends on the match, the situation? Um, I always love asking that question because sometimes people prefer a certain style more than others. Some don't. What do you say?
0: Uh, I generally will take tag team wrestling just because, like, my strength is just to come out there and do, like, you know, something cool or to, like, take the heat and, like, bump around and stuff. And so tag team wrestlings, I, tag team wrestlings, tag team wrestling, I can, uh, what is it, like? kind of put the spotlight on my strengths while hiding my weaknesses. So I generally, again, it depends on the partner though. But so generally I like tag team wrestling better, but I like singles as well. The only thing is, man, these promoters, they, they'll put you in a single, a 20 minute singles or whatever. And I'm like, it's going to be a boring match. Like, I don't want to sound lazy, but make it literally 12 to 15 and it'll be the same match, but just with less like, in bet- you know what I mean? So that's the one thing about, uh, uh, being a singles wrestler is that you have to do these long drawn out matches, which is weird considering there's one of you instead of two. And most of the time it, it uh, when you draw out the match, it just means there's less action and more resting. You know what I mean? So uh, I get a little annoyed with the singles cause I'm like, man, there's no reason to make us go 20 minutes. We're going to do everything in that 20 minutes that we would do in 15. But, so, I, I, yeah, actually, no, I totally like tag team better. The matches are generally shorter for some reason. I can cover up my weaknesses, I can show my strengths, and I don't have to argue with the promoter that the match would be better, shorter, and not, and not have to worry about sounding lazy.
1: Is it hard sometimes to convince a promoter that, hey, I think we should do X, Y, Z, or I think we should cut this down, or do you feel like, over time, oh. as they get to know you, they start to take your input a little bit more, a little bit more. Or, or is it a situation of, it's not even worth bringing up to X, Y, Z because they're not going to go for it?
0: Yeah, certain people are definitely be worth bringing up, but like a lot of times a promoter, I won't go up and like try to be, uh, like, uh, you know what would be better twenty fifteen instead of twenty whatever. I'll, I'll like kind of passively aggressively do it, like, uh, you know, the show's running a little long that. Twenty minutes. I mean, we <laughs> could do the same match in fifteen if you need to save a little bit of time or something. You know, I'm like I almost try to like, like get like it. You're
1: doing there. them a favor.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's like yeah, yeah. I'm doing it for them or whatever. Like, wow.
1: So, and, and I promise I won't. I won't keep you much longer. But I, I did want to ask yeah, you well. about how did how did the AEW uh, opportunity come about? Um, Because I mean, you are so experienced and. Obviously you have longevity in the business as well and a successful career. So how did that eventually come about? Was it somebody reached out to you and they said, Hey, this is something that might be in the works or kind of take me through that process.
0: Well, I knew that, you know, like AW was something in the works or whatever, but like, I wasn't expecting to be any part of it at all. And then just a random email from the young bucks. And then that's just how it started. And then like, oh man thank god it did because one thing i have to say about aew is that uh they closed the border for like four months i think it was of mexico and america and i could have gone back to america but i couldn't go back to mexico and i didn't want to leave my family you know alone during the pandemic whatever sure. so i there was four months where i just had to stay home and like uh AEW continued to pay me. And then I, so I was just thinking about that the other day. I was like, man, I don't know what I would have done if I didn't have AEW during the pandemic. Cause there was no wrestling going on. And like, so, and they continue to still pay your salary, even when you couldn't wrestle or you're, you know, with less shows or whatever. So thank God the uh, young bucks sent me that email because it, it allowed me to like skip a lot of the hardship of the pandemic that, it, you know what I mean? It's already a bad time, but like it did definitely helped with what would have been huge financial woes
1: what's your take on on the company i mean obviously a lot of people know that it's, it's changed um since its original um formation obviously a lot of things change just because sometimes you have to the, it's the way the business works you evolve you change you try to grow your audience do you feel like the company's the same company as it was back in the the early beginnings
0: <laughs> i'm ready as you, you are uh, totally fine <laughs> no i definitely don't think it's the same company that they had uh in the beginning like direction wise or whatever but like you said I, I just i think like everything changes and i mean it'd be nice to be able to you know right before you start something you pan- plan out its path and how it's going to be and yada 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 but i i just think that uh they kind of go with the flow a little bit and so uh, i think that if it's changed it's more because of they're trying to do what they think the fans will want so i I don't think it's changed because like there's like some nefarious politics going on or something like that you know what i mean i just think that it's a lot uh not a lot different but it's a bit different of a style now because I, I think that's what they think the fans are responding to the best or will respond to the best. So I, I don't th- I do think it's changed a lot, but I think that like you said, like everything changes It was natural and I don't think it's anything like again nefarious like.
1: We've talked to different fans and uh, a lot of people are a little frustrated because they feel like there's a lot of, People from other promotions coming in now, taking spots and TV time and whatnot, and how that's difficult for the people who've been loyal and faithful to the company for so long, and and were there through those difficult times. Would you also say, along with the fans, that that can be kind of a difficult pill to swallow at times?
0: It can, but that's a line, man. I just, I see, I don't really know right now who Tony has himself surrounded by. But I hope they're smart enough to clue them in on nothing will kill your product like low like low locker room morale. So I, I don't you know what I mean know what side to take on, you know, like guys coming in versus you know, people that have already been there. But they do the office has to handle that because it will slowly turn into like a straight up vile situation where guys are starting to like do stuff to each other and like, like It'll get if it really becomes like this, like almost like uh, like AEW original versus like new guys coming in thing or something because that happened in AAA. Like, it actually escalates into like the feeling of like a prison, like people be clicked up, like, will be like openly and publicly like rude, not talking to you. Like, so if that is happening where there's a schism in the locker room, somebody needs to clean that up right now or like. Because nothing will kill your product like locker room, low locker room morale, and uh, nothing will kill locker room morale like guys that think they've put in work and have got no advancement, or even worse, like there isn't even going to be the opportunity for advancement, like that'll that kill locker room morale. So if that is happening, someone at AEW office, like they need to figure out how to change that, because you know what that has happened to like every five years, not to diss them? but was impact. Like I swear it TNA would have the hottest product and they would just do some stupid crap and they would kill the morale in the locker room and the product would go down. And then like, they had the hot product again, like, was, like five, 10 years ago. And then they brought in like Bischoff and all these people and everything. And like all those X-Division guys and everything that busted their ass, like kind of getting the, getting the attention and everything. Oh man, they were miserable when I was there during that time. And so like, you can just see in other promotions. Although at now Impact has one of the best locker rooms ever. It was very nice. So I'm talking about the past. But anyway, but you can see from other historical examples. I guess that's a weird phrase used for that. But that like locker room morale is the killer. Like in Doom, fear is the mind killer, and wrestling locker low locker room morale is the promotion killer. So it, and it always happens. It always happens. It happened in AAA two. Where it, it, and it was when I came in, I was considered one of the, the foreigners, not the, I literally was a foreigner and not from Mexico, but like a, a foreigner as an, outside an outsider, like from outside the promotion. So like there was at first a lot of heat because it was all of a sudden, like guys, some guys have to take a six hour bus, but like I'd get a plane ride or something like that. And like, yeah, the locker room morale. Uh, got really low even in a at that time when they started bringing in a whole bunch of people from the outside because the people that kind of had their boots on the ground the ones that you know have been putting in work like they start to feel slighted and it just it gets to be a vile situation like that's when like people get their bag shit in and stuff, or crap in and stuff like that that's, like, it, it really is because of that it's when people think they have no advancement and there's some kind of outside force coming and blocking them like
1: would you say, and I just I love getting people's opinions on different things because I know a, a part of this is is obviously a work because it's 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 wrestling, right? Um, it's a work unless you can prove it to me otherwise. Uh, MJF situation, do you feel like in there some ways he feels like he's really put his time in and he's really uh, done a lot, and he feels like he should get some better opportunities? Do you think there is some level of truth inside some of the things he's done and how he feels? In your opinion?
0: Uh maybe. I'm not sure. But I don't mean, it always seemed when I was there, MJF was treated good, mm-hmm. so I don't know what his like I don't know what like his qualms would be or wouldn't be. So like there absolutely could be truth to that or it could be total war. I don't really know. Cause I like MJF and I hung out with him a bit and everything, but like I don't ever remember there being any incident. I I always felt like he was treated good. So I don't know. I'd need to know like his contract and everything. Like maybe he's just, I mean, maybe there is a little bit of truth or maybe it's like super truthful. 100%. I just, I honestly want to know.
1: Looking back at the experiences in AEW, what would you say was your uh, was your highlight? Something that you enjoyed the most? You know, we, we talked about you know what you enjoyed in Japan and what you enjoyed in AAA and and obviously in, in Ring of Honor as well. What would you say, in your opinion, man? I'm really
0: proud of this. Um, I didn't actually really get a moment in AEW, I'm super proud. like got oh, a career highlight style. Like I love being part of the promotion. It was great and everything, but I never actually really got that. Uh, I didn't really have many or any of those moments. I feel like I don't have that super proud moment, in AEW, but I am proud of the kidney match, even though it's my most hated match. Cause it should have been so much better. And then uh, I really liked my match with the best friend, TH2 versus the best friends. Yep. And uh, yeah, that's about it. Like other than that, I really feel like, uh, it, it wasn't the craziest run where, like, uh, I, I didn't really have very many standout matches. So,
1: do you feel like you were ready to move on or you wanted something different where you could explore yourself a little bit more, or were you pretty happy with where you were at that time?
0: I was happy with where I was in AEW right before the pandemic happened. Uh, I felt like like we had a really good spot like they needed heels there were many tag team heels at that time and uh, we were basically (laughs) if you make fun of you it's the spot to be but mid-card jobbers you know what I mean so like if someone was gonna (laughs) get like a feud with like the young bucks or anything like we would be there like the stepping stone like they'd have to have a match with us and then go on or whatever and like I actually really liked that role and I thought we played it really well and it was something that was needed so I know everyone wants to be like the big star main event or whatever but like you know, I, I was totally happy with that role. Like, if I could get more, that'd be fine. But I, I was totally fine at how we were booked. But then after the the long break that I had, like the four months of the border being closed, I came back, had one match, and then I broke my face, uh, and I was out for another like month and a half, two months or something I can't remember. And when I came back from that, I like I literally just I couldn't perform anymore. So w- once we start getting like that era of my AEW run, like, I, I, wasn't ready to move on. Like, I wasn't even ready to do anything. I don't know what happened. So, like, or I know what happened. I just got like super lazy and just out of it and yada, yada, yada. But, so, I, uh, I was happy with how it was used and how it was booked and I could have just stayed there forever with like the pre-pandemic uh, uh, way we were being booked in AEW. But then afterwards, it's no fault AEW. It was because Specifically, mine. Not even in Helico's Like lack of performance. Like I, I wish we could have been used differently, but that's more of, like I said, a performance thing.
1: Do you feel like people within AEW feel like Dark and Dark Elevation is a step down?
0: Uh, well, yeah, it's going to always be seen as a step down because it's YouTube only. It's not. It's just not you know Dynamite or Rampage. So I mean, it will be seen as a step down, but it's more. But, but the thing is, even though like it, it's technically a step down it's not it doesn't mean like you're worth less to the company or anything because like one of my last matches in AEW, so with eddie kingston he's just hot off you know the feud of moxley and everything so they just needed him at that spot they needed a body you know what i mean so they it it, it obviously like kind of a step down so i was watched by as many people as rampage and dynamite but being on dark or elevation doesn't necessarily mean like you're it's stepped down as a wrestler. Sometimes they just need you there. You know what I mean? But my thing with AEW uh, dark and elevation was originally they were going to start having uh, feuds and storylines and stuff for the developmental talent. And it was going to start actually with TH2 versus Christopher Daniels and uh, Frankie Kazarian. And there's, you can watch a couple of the old episodes. We actually like kind of start to get it started and then it just never goes anywhere. And then they just kind of transformed it back into like, like a job or show. you know what I mean? Like, it's just like a WWF you know, a superstars
1: thing. back in the eighties.
0: Yeah. You know, which is fine and everything, but I just, I really think they should have gone with that style before because, uh, so not only just for wrestling and everything, but you also need to almost practice like being in a feud and like how you act. Cause you gotta be, you gotta act a little bit differently if you're in a blood feud with a dude than if it's just a normal match or whatever. And then also for promos and everything. So I really feel like for developmental talent, if they would use that as a B show, you know, like no shame, like you know, like as a B show that it would be a lot better. Be, and guys, uh, be more willing to do it because right now it's like it, it, with AW Dark, uh, you're either a jobber or you're just the guy going over, and it's like the simple match, like 80 20. You just beat the guy up, he gets a couple things, and you, finish, you know what I mean? And I, it's hard to get excited for that. So I think if they actually used it as like a, an, an internet B show and you just put the guys, and especially with when you have a uh, roster as large as they do. And just to keep guys like hungry and fresh is give them feuds, give them all that and let them uh, practice. So when they do get called up to rampage or dynamite, like they're not going to, you know, like the first time you get on a mic, like it doesn't matter how many times you cut a promo in front of your wrestling class or whatever. Like when you're actually in front of that crowd or whatever, it's you you just, you can't cut it the same way. Like it's all eyes on you, like everything becomes different. But if they've already been practicing that on AEW Dark and Rampage and, it, you know what I mean, the, the stakes for a, a bad promo or something aren't the same, they, they can get more confidence for if they ever do get called up for you know something bigger.
1: The door's still left open if you uh, decide to come back. Have they always kind of left that as a situation of, you know what, we'd, we'd be more than happy to, to have you again? Would that be a... Uh, an option that you would like to explore at some point?
0: Oh yeah. I'd love being on that salary. If they ever took me back, of course I'd go, but yeah, (laughs) no, as far as I know, at least there's no, uh, there's no heat or anything between us, but the the thing, obviously I'd love to go back, but like, man, they just have such a big roster. I just don't see like, uh, like a use for me. Like before, like I said, like the being in Helico we had our niche and everything, but now, with how many guys they got and like this possible schism you're know, talking about and everything, I'd love to go back, but I don't think it will happen or anytime soon.
1: Yeah, we we noticed, uh, obviously the dark order, which was something that was heavily uh focused on early on in AEW. You know, now Stu Grayson gone, um, a couple other people are, are now, surprising. yeah, Stu is gone, and gosh, for the life of me, I'm trying to think of, um, the other individual that is gone as well. Gosh, I don't know why it's slipping my mind. Um,
0: Alex Reynolds, John silver, 10, um,
1: Alan angels.
0: Oh, Alan angels, Alan angels.
1: Yeah. So he's the second guy that's gone. And people on the, on Twitter have said, you know, is, is the dark order, you know, kind of dying. And, uh, obviously evil, Uno said, no, you, we're not, which obviously is the response you expect. Um, I just wonder how hard it is because you're right the The roster is huge and it's got tons of talent. I, I often wondered if they will be able to kind of raise themselves up to compete with a WWE or do you think that shouldn't even be a goal?
0: Uh, well, obviously you can say it's not a goal. It's always going to be a goal. You're going to want to be the number one show in town, but, uh, I think they can raise themselves up to be the WWE. But one thing that always happens again, with these major promotions is they like lose sight of what made them hot. And then I swear it's like the, it's my theory, like uh, the world wrestling or the WWE theory of entropy. Everything always comes back to the WWE. I swear. Cause these promotions will get hot doing something, making like their own style, own name or whatever. And then once they get that attention, then all of a sudden they start bringing in like the WWE again. Like they start doing yep. the WWE style yep. and then that drops them back off because you're never going to do the WWE better than the WWE does. And that always happens to major wrestling promotions is that once they hit this certain spot, they're getting national attention. They feel like they have to copycat WWE like that's what they did. So if AEW does want to grow to be bigger than WWE, I really think that they just need to continue to do what they're doing and, like, make their own style. Like, don't try to be the WWE to beat the WWE. Well,
1: just like what you said with the X Division with TNA, that's what made them so special.
0: Were the remember back who- then Christian Daniels read all that? Like, oh, my it God. It hot as hell. Yes. Hot as hell. That's what people tuned in for, man. We were loving it. Ultimate and then all of a sudden, X. they just started to, like, focus on other stuff. And, like, if you look at what they're focused on, it was a more what WWE was doing at that time. And, like, it always happens. Once that attention comes around, people always feel like they got to they, they got to copy the big dog or whatever. Well, AW is a big dog as well, so uh, I, I don't know if we'll run into that same pothole or whatever. But yeah, that's always a big fear of mine for major wrestling promotions. If they do get hot, they are growing, they are getting attention. All of a sudden, they look over across the fence like, "Hey, let's do what that guy's doing." It's like, no, no, just continue down your path.
1: I'm with you. Um, kind of coming to a close here. I'm going to ask you some just some random things here, uh, so our audience can get to know you even more. Favorite food? If uh, money's no object, and someone says, "I'm flipping the bill," anywhere. Anything you want. What are you taking?
0: Chili, chili and nogadas, chili and nogadas. It's, uh, uh, it's like a chili, you know, like green chili or whatever, but they like rip out the insides and everything. So it's not hot. And then they stuff it with, uh, you can make it with different meat, but generally, I'm sorry. I've been eating this whole interview. I'm sorry. I'm so hungry. Uh, Uh, they generally carne molita i I can't even translate it in my head ground beef they generally stuff it with like ground beef but then they add this stuff i don't even know what it is like acetrone, like uh, granada and they like whip up this like uh this white sauce or whatever and put it all over and it makes it really sweet so like it's i don't know how to explain it but like it's like eating like like candy meat in, that's inside of a, a chili or something i don't know but it's delicious that was the worst explanation of it ever and then second <laughs> <laughs> but so chili nogadas like look looking up on the internet people can explain it better than me chili nogada. Go, go around you, you gotta try chili nogada it's super amazing good great delicious and the second would be yakiniku the korean barbecue nice
1: uh, favorite place to go anywhere in the world, just favorite place, man. That is my place, that's my spot. Uh, where is it? Just so you're gonna uh, chill let's so say you're like gonna actually,
0: vacation, li- like vacation. So, we're talking about a, a little bit of time to stay, yes. Um, Mazatlan used to be up there, but I haven't been back in a while. So, right now, I'd say probably Acapulco. Nice. Well, actually, no, I know, screw Acapulco. I was on the Acapulco Beach, and I got stung by a goddamn stingray. And no, yeah, no, no, never mind. Acapulco's off. I'm sorry. <laughs> I apologize. No, I don't know. I don't take vacations anymore after that. Oh, man, I, I hate stingrays now. Sorry. that bro.
1: stingray. That guy – and stingray, uh, poor Steve Irwin. You know what I mean?
0: Yeah, yeah. But no, this one wasn't anything giant like that. Like, oh, man. What happened to Steve Irwin was craziest, though. Because that's so rare. Because the thing is, I stepped on it, and just how stingrays are, you know what I mean? Like, being stung by it makes sense. But, like, with how Steve Irwin went like, they just don't usually sting like that. They're actually super nice animals. I actually watched a whole bunch of stuff on them after uh, getting stung by one. But So, yeah, I can't believe what happened to Steve Irwin, because that's super rare, like... And it just would have to hit it the right spot, and he must—it must have been one of those giant stingrays. It was, like. it
1: was, big, and he got bravehearted right through the chest. And it's like, you know, I, I read about that too. That that was very rare, and it was a freak, freak situation. And uh, I—you it, it can, can
0: swim with stingrays and stuff. Like, they don't attack you. Like, listen, I'm a big guy.
1: Listen, I'm a little chunky monkey here, so I ain't getting <laughs> in the water with any animal that could remotely even say dinner. No way. Uh uh-uh. uh. Yeah. I'm a okay. No, day you're right. booger
0: You're right. I'm sorry. The are those stupid thoughts coming out of my mind after I got stung by the stingray. I won't even. I'm not even going in the ocean anymore. Like I'll, I'll collect some of the sand that's wet to make a sandcastle on the shore, that's and that's about it. God, uh, I can't believe that happened. Okay, anyway. Let's see here.
1: Uh, da, da, da. the coolest person you've ever met outside of wrestling. Coolest person you ever met.
0: Oh, outside of wrestling or in, inside of wrestling? X Pac. For X-Files. sure. Yeah, 100%. Uh, outside of wrestling, the coolest person? that My father-in-law is actually is up there. He's awesome. He's, <laughs> he's one of the coolest people ever. Uh, but I'm trying to think uh, outside of wrestling. Any celebrity
1: run-ins? Huh? Any celebrity run-ins?
0: <laughs> I mean, I meant like some, like I meant like Nick Cage for a second and stuff, but like, it, it's just like, hi how you doing style like you know what i mean it's so not not anything to write home about um no i don't know who the coolest person outside of wrestling is you know what actually that's a trick question if you're outside of wrestling you're not cool so oh, oh yeah, very nice yeah. uh-huh, i like that uh-huh. Uh-huh. <clears throat>
1: Let's see. Any uh, funniest moment that happened in the ring with somebody? Did anybody ever just try to make you laugh or just act stupid or whatever?
0: Well, it it would actually, it happened to me. I don't want to call it the funniest, but uh, L.A. Park is just known for doing weird stuff at these house shows. They'll just do whatever. (laughs) So he kept telling me he had a surprise for me that night, surprise for me that night, da 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 da. And so I'm taking the heat. He's giving it to me. And... (laughs) He lays me down in a carpet and then, uh, uh, like, literally, like, he's like, just don't move, don't move anything. And he rolls me up in the entire carpet, just like a, uh, uh, like, like you would a cartoon or whatever. Right. And then just leaves me out there the whole match. And then, like, it's so, like, I literally spent, like, I didn't even do a single finish for the first, second, or third ball. So you know, I, didn't, I know it's not that funny a story to tell but at the time I just crack it up because it was literally like 20 minutes of me just staring up and like wrapped up in this carpet and I don't know why I was like and he was telling me he was gonna do this before he had a surprise for me so I'm like what is going on with LA Park that he comes to the building beforehand is like you know what I'm doing like guys. I'm wrapping Jack up in the carpet, like so. Like it's weird, that, that was one of the weirdest things to happen. This doesn't sound like it, but just yeah, L.A. Park wrapping up in a carpet, and then, um, trying to think funny things. I don't know. I can't off the top of my head. I can't really think mm-hmm. of anything.
1: This this random one will will kind of maybe trigger something. And once again, you can plead the fifth, and you you can change names to protect the innocent. Uh, best car ride mm-hmm. story
0: best car ride story or
1: experience or something that happened that you know you could say oh my god if i wasn't in that car i would not believe what they told me happened
0: well they're not the best but some of my favorite were actually ted would just somehow get us a ride to show or something from, from someone random and he would always tell this story about uh eating or about someone that ate a puppy shit sandwich <laughs> and i don't know how to explain it but like, what's Hold that on. joke that, what's that joke that has no punchline uh oh my god i can't remember the name of it well there's a, there's a famous joke they've made a movie about it it's a joke that has no punchline and like that was the puppy shit sandwich it was just kind of like how far he could take this story about someone that ate a puppy shit sandwich. And it was a constant thing. I've seen him do it like seven or eight times. And so like, Oh, it was a triple coil diarrhea, puppy shit sandwich. (laughs) and And like, it eventually got to the point where like, I'm telling you, like he'd have a two-hour card ride just filled up the whole entire time with him telling these stories about some guy that ate a puppy shit sandwich. And like I don't know. It doesn't it just, just crack me up. It was just one of those weird things on the road he used to do to entertain himself. But <laughs> wow. just try to see how long you can get people to listen the stories of puppy shit sandwiches. Wow. I um, think you got movie styles with one really good. Because AJ Styles mentioned it once to me. He was like, what's up with that fucking puppy shit? And it was like so I was like, oh, God, he AJ Styles had to hear the puppy shit sandwich story.
1: Uh, best, well, outside of this one, best rib you've ever heard somebody pull on
0: another person? Best rib, I'm trying to think. Um... God, there are so many that used to happen up in Calgary and I forgot all of them. <laughs> is ribbing
1: a big thing? Let me ask you this kind of as a sidebar. Is it used to a- not
0: really anymore, not much. Like well, I now mean, the e- biggest rib, in like Japan. In AEW, the big rib, was uh and what, while everyone was at like at their matches or the TV or whatever, and Helico would sneak in and he'd put a shoe uh, I mean he'd put a chip in someone's shoe, and if they put their and if they put their foot in and broke the chip they had to eat it so like like little little things like that but like these big like old school dynamite kit ribs where like these letting people lighting people's beds on fire and stuff they don't really happen anymore. They't did even happen in my time not that crazy but
1: do they do that kind of stuff in Mexico and Japan or is that more more so stateside?
0: Uh no, you'll do ribs and stuff, uh in Mexico, but they're a bit different. Like they usually like, they, oh I don't even know if you should tell this one again. Is Ed Helico that put me up to it? But uh, <laughs> we found that the turkey hot dogs, like if if you you unzipped your pants and like just stuck it out. And, and just, like, kind of went by so someone could only see it for half a second. It literally looked like someone was flashing you. So, <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the big thing uh, for us in Mexico that we would do is we'd put the, the turkey hot dog in between our thing and just, like, pretend to, like, flash a wrestler. And then you like, what, what are you doing? Why are you showing me? <laughs> and then, like, it, it started to escalate to where we'd, like, touch on with that part and there's one time <laughs> Mini Abito Negro was on the phone like bent over in a chair in this huge fight with his wife and I went and I and while it was like in my pants I went and I wiped the hot dog across his cheek oh, oh dude god. oh oh my god he exploded I instantly I had to chill like that I need to get other people over he wasn't believing it or whatever like and afterwards he, he was totally cool but he's like Man, no, that normally would have been funny, but I was in the biggest fight with my wife and everything. So, like, in Mexico, it's usually like just little gross things, like it's not, uh, like, like something like that where it's, it's gross, but it's, it's not like a like a big setup or something.
1: Wow, that's awesome. I have had a lot of fun. I've learned so much and you're a very personable individual. Is there any chance that we could twist your arm to uh, to talk more wrestling down the road?
0: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely.
1: Uh, this is where I call it plug uh, Merchandise, social media, all that kind of stuff, upcoming tour dates, you name it, the floor is yours. Anything that you would like to mention, shout-outs,
0: uh, all that kind
1: of good stuff.
0: Uh, my social medias are... Instagram, cool ass Jack and Twitter, jackevans711. I'm any March. I gotta get on that. Um, AEW handled that when I was, <laughs> was signed with them, so I don't have any. Uh, upcoming shows, June 16th, and oh man, where's I think New York? And then I can't remember the rest of the words. I'm sorry, promoters. I'm so sorry. You're I'm fine. So sorry. And then uh, July 23rd, uh, and sometime August in Dallas. Uh, God, I can't remember. But yeah, there's upcoming events. Okay. <laughs> oh man. Oh god. I put you on one the spot. Of the once my... you watch this show, I'm not prepared at all. No, 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 no. That,
1: that's my fault. I, I, I kind of, I felt bad. I was like, oh
0: man. No, 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 no. no. That's a normal question to ask. I should absolutely know what my upcoming dates are. But, but DNF duel has taken over my life. Okay, this isn't my fault. Okay, I suffer from video game addiction. Yes. And uh, you know that's just what it does. My
1: goodness. It has been so much fun. I've gotten to learn so much, so much about you, and and I think that's what's the most important thing about doing these interviews. Is it's so cool to talk wrestling, but it's it's awesome to get to know the person themselves and the personality and, and everything. And you're such a phenomenally talented individual that uh, I am so excited about what is to come for
0: you as well. Well, well, thank you, thank you. The only thing is, please ignore my hair. Okay, that, that's. Uh, out of everything, you just put me over like a billion bucks. I should probably hire you as a publicist. But no, my insecurities have taken over in my hair. Oh, oh.
1: I have an idea. I have an idea, what? and I'm going to pitch this to you. Wrestling with video games. There should be a podcast where there's a group of guys, and they literally just talk about their video game addictions and their stories and how they rip on each other and the whole nine yards. Do you think something like that would get over?
0: I think it could, but I think they could only get over as like a, uh, like storytelling podcast like that for a couple uh, like shows. But if they went where it was like wrestlers almost doing like video game news and stuff, maybe I think so.
1: I'm gonna have to keep you on the in the loop on that one because I feel like you have a what very is- healthy passion for wrestling or uh, wrestling video games. But I think also you could uh, you could tell some very good stories and and do some smack talk as well
0: oh i love the smack talk but i'm not i'm not up there with the angelico's and the orange cassidy's where they take it to just that next level where it's like oh oh we're about to lose our friendship (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
1: wow jack evans it has been so much fun thank you so much for your time and we will definitely uh touch base with you down the road my friend all right thank you for having me all right we'll talk soon All right, guys, that is Jack Evans. So much fun getting a chance to, like I said before, getting to know someone. It's fun to, as an interviewer, mark out because you're getting to talk to people who are on national TV. They're international stars. You love their work. But you know what? There is a point in interviews where you actually get to know someone. And you start to have a conversation with somebody that you feel like you just met either at a bar or they're a friend that you went to high school with um and you're just all of a sudden reminiscing about really cool memories and i feel like that's what's really cool uh about jack and i think that he is a very honest and open person I think that he's had a great career so far. He's seen so many things and, and that's why I had brought up, you know, being an agent at some point in time. I hope he continues to think about that, but his experiences, obviously with TNA, his experiences over at Dragon Gate, which are amazing. His stories that he told about Mexico and obviously uh, his time in AEW as well. Jack Evans is one of the good ones. Um, I'm going to go ahead and I'll probably touch base with Jack again. We'll go ahead and we'll post uh, dates. Uh, signings, autographs, all that kind of stuff where you can get his merchandise as well and definitely support him. Good dude, good, hardworking man. And uh, he really embodies why wrestling fans love wrestling because you like the person first and then you like what they do, obviously, on camera next. All right. Thank you for hanging in there. Extra long episode. Once again, thank you to Jack Evans for hanging with us and spending so much of his his evening with us. It's uh, almost a two-hour interview, and it has been nothing but fun. Hope you guys enjoyed it. I am Mike Freeland, and I will officially catch you on the next episode of Front Row Material.
0: The world of NLW Radio never stops.